yourself to this world and to us. We thank you that you're present by your spirit. And we pray now that you'd be giving us clarity on your word and your will. Give us courage to respond in faith rather than unbelief. And strengthen us to seek to respond to you in a way that is pleasing. And we ask this for your sake. Amen. Well, that middle of December vibe might be that sort of contrast of the halftime event where you've sort of been going with these end of year activities, but you still know there's a whole lot more to go. And perhaps this morning you're sort of asking the question, can we just do things differently next year? You know, what's so special about Christmas anyway that every family and friend group feels the need to gather together, that all workplaces need to have various events? Perhaps something more spread out is appealing to you at this time of the year. It's something where you can not be jumping from one group of friends or family to another, but you can actually just enjoy the moment. Perhaps when you can allocate getaways when accommodation is cheaper and you know all the prices haven't been escalated perhaps even you're looking back at the last few christmases with all their disruptions and sort of finding something desirable about you know the fact that you could sort of say well look borders are shut i can't go and visit or that sort of weird vibe of sort of you know having a positive rat test and and realizing oh rather than this frantic weekend that i had planned things are going to be a little bit more peaceful. The question about what is so special about Christmas that it creates this frenzied hype is probably something that for some of us we are constantly thinking about, but others perhaps come in and out of it. For some people, the Christmas season is quite significant, it's quite full. For others, it sort of can feel awkwardly empty, a little bit boring and can accentuate some loneliness. From a religious perspective, some churches really ramp up strong Christmas rituals that have been going for decades that people love and cherish, whereas for others, it's more of a solemn, reflective time. What we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks is just sort of spending time on the heart of the Christian message, the heart of Jesus' arrival. We're looking at it from Luke's perspective, and Luke chapters 1 and 2, they're lengthy, And what we see today is a passage that doesn't even mention Jesus. We haven't even got there yet. And so I was thinking about Luke 1 and 2, like like, like a concert that's got a couple of um, support acts that are quite good in, in and of themselves, that are sort of quite lengthy and significant. And so today we're really focusing in on the arrival of John the Baptist. And there's something really important as we spend some time looking at the first 25 verses of Luke's Gospel, because we see something of God. John isn't the headline act, he's not the star of the show, but there's something in him that God reveals about himself. And so what we see today is that God is both reliable and gracious. I don't know if you've ever been called reliable But it's not really the the greatest compliment. It doesn't sort of evoke... It sort of sounds a little bit boring, doesn't it? Okay, it's great that I'm reliable. When I grow up, I want to be a reliable person. Although it's not something that sort of evokes great uh, wonder or interest, it's something that's really important, isn't it? 
Uh, probably one of my most anticipated movies this year was uh, the movie uh, around Blackberry. Uh, I was constantly sort of waiting for it to the release date in Australia, which was delayed from Canada, and then the release from just being viewed at the cinemas or at the expensive online price to just the rental price. So I could watch it at its most affordable. But you know, it's just an interesting uh, doco movie around this device that was the first really handheld device you could access email without uh, Wi-Fi. So back in the mid-2000s, uh, it was a thing that everyone had these Blackberries. And, and so it was like this wonder. Hey, I'm just... I'm just walking the streets and I can check my email. It was like a game changer. But so wonderful was it that everyone got these. And so the demand went crazy. And so the tech guys realized that their system couldn't handle the sheer load. And so there's various moments in the history of the device where the whole thing just shuts down because it's so amazing. And at that point, reliability matters. <laughs> No matter how wonderful this device was, you can access emails anywhere. If it is unreliable, then it's pretty useless. And so, although this sort of claim that God's a reliable God that we see in our passage today might seem a little bit boring, mixed with the wonder of Christmas, we see that it's actually so pivotal that God has shown himself. And it seems that Luke is really concerned about reliability. Have a look at there in verse 1 as he sort of describes his purpose. He's not the first person who writes a biography of Jesus. He says, verse 1, many have done just this, but he has carefully investigated everything and then he's compiled this orderly account. Luke seems to be a guy who thinks that sources need to be accurate, that his research should be thorough. And what he writes in Luke's Gospel, he organises in a systematic way so that those who read it might know the certainty of things that have been taught, verse 4. We're introduced to uh, this Theophilus guy in verse 4. It was probably Luke's patron, you know, the guy who sort of commissioned Luke to write this or at least sort of supported him financially while he did it. It's a, bit, a little bit like what book publishers do to authors. Hey, we're going to give you this money to write this many books. And so the author can live over those time where they write the book, whether it's months or years. And so Theophilus has enabled Luke the freedom to compile this orderly account. And Luke's goal is that for Theophilus and others that those who hear these compilation of events, that they would know the certainty. Now, despite the fact that Luke sort of comes off with this sort of quite systematic and a little bit boring approach, what we're going to see in what he records is not just ordinary events, and not just a description of life without surprises. The information that he presents does evoke questions because... Luke presents the extraordinary events of God coming and dwelling in the world. And so this orderly account, it begins with some fairly orderly conduct in verses 5 to 10. And in verse 5, we meet Zechariah. Now, I knew this was going to be important to say, this is not the Zechariah we just spent eight weeks on, right? That Zechariah is 500 years prior to this Zechariah. But this Zechariah we see is a priest. 
And his wife, Elizabeth, also descends from a priestly heritage from the line of Aaron. And so this is a religious family with a heritage of being leaders within God's people. And we see in verse 6 that they seem to be living up to their family heritage. It says that both of them were upright in the sight of God, that they observed all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But despite being blameless, there's a complication there in verse 7. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. No kids. And two obvious barriers to kids ever being a part of their life, a body that was unable and ages that were of an age that fertility was no longer an option. And so in that is a lack of hope. And so no doubt there would have been many years, perhaps many decades of heartache at that great loss of not being able to enjoy parenthood. But perhaps even in this society, there was a, another factor at play. That there could have been this sense that there was a punishment from God in them not being able to have children. And so this sense of shame could have been part of their household experience. And so, whilst Zechariah is introduced, we see a very particular moment in his life in verse 8. As Luke focuses in on Zechariah offering this evening temple offering. Now, Zechariah wasn't just like the highest priest. He was a priest among many, hundreds, even thousands of priests within the people of God. But this occasion that Zechariah is experiencing is probably the most special day in his working career. The fact that he was to be drawn by lot to offer this incense is thought to be that this is a once-in-a-lifetime event for for any priest. It's a privileged task. And so Luke describes Zechariah dutifully doing his service And outside the temple, the worshippers are praying. And so what we see here is God's people just sort of going through fairly orderly conduct. But then in verse 11, something very unexpected appears. While Zechariah administering this very particular incense offering is now not alone. Suddenly there's an angel on the right side of the altar, again, sort of, you know, specific detail that, that Luke's mentioning, right side is sort of the favourable side for God. And so here's Zechariah making his offering, and then this angel appears on, on the very side that would be God's messenger, the right side, a side, uh, um, an approach of God's favour. And, and when Zechariah sees this angel, he's gripped with fear which is pretty standard for anyone who sees an angel, really, in the Bible and in the real world. And so the angel says, verse 13, don't be afraid, there's good news. Your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you to give him the name John. Now there's a few things missing here, we're not really sure what Zechariah has been praying, he's been bringing the, the offering But the angel seems to be associating that Zechariah's prayers, probably past prayers, are being answered with the arrival of this baby. 
And so what we see in this passage that we see throughout the whole Bible is that God is executing his cosmic plan, but he, but he does it at very personal interactions. And so that's the, one of the amazing things about God is that he, he works holistically as well as personally. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers were probably prayers from long ago for a child to be blessed in their household. But probably the more immediate prayers for those on the outside of the temple was for God to be raising up a king to bring about change. Because this is a time in the history of God's people where they were still, they were back in the land as had been promised with Zechariah, but things weren't quite right. That They were under Roman rule. Herod was their king. He wasn't Jewish. He'd come to power through treachery and bloodshed. Even the temple that they were praying in and offering services, it wasn't fully theirs. And so there would have been these constant reminders that they were a people who weren't free, but really enslaved at some level. They were in the promised land, but they didn't have the freedom that was expected from life there. They were ruled by Gentiles, and it was the Gentiles who prospered from the fruit of their soil and from the sweat of their brow. And, and so perhaps some of the prayers of those worshippers outside the temple that day were, how long, O oh God? When's this Messiah going to come, Lord? Bring the Messiah, rescue us from evil. In chapter 2 of Luke, we see something of perhaps what the heartbeat was. We see from Simeon in chapter 2, verse 25, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna in chapter 2, verse 38, was looking forward to the redemption of Israel. You know, there was a sense that this isn't the realisation and completion of what God's promised. And so the prayers that were answered, the prayers that were being delivered, were probably prayers for renewal. Prayers that God would realise his plan. And so the angel tells Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, that his prayers have been answered. His wife is going to be pregnant and he'll have a son and he's to name his son John, which means the Lord is gracious. And so in the midst of this sort of just ordinary, going through the motions of religious duty, God turns up in an unexpected way with this wondrous act. A pregnancy. The arrival. God showing that he remembers his promises to his people and that he's willing to be gracious with the sending of this boy who would become a man. And so God's grace is realised in John's birth. And not only will his parents be filled with great joy as their longing to be parents is realised, but it says that many will rejoice because of the role that John will have in God's plan. Have a look at verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Just like many of the forefathers of the past, John will be great because God will use him 
for his purposes. He's going to be equipped by the Holy Spirit. And so like some of the judges, prophets, priests and kings in the past, God is going to equip him to fill his role. There's sort of allusions to like Samson that we looked at when we looked at Judges last year. You know, someone who who never takes wine and is mighty to rescue. But it's not going to be a rescue through force. It's going to be a rescue through a realisation of truth. Because John's ministry is going to be a ministry of repentance. Have a look at verse 16. It says, Many will he bring back to the Lord their God. John is sort of this real transitional leader. You know, often organisations, when they've had someone who's been a leader for a long, long time, they sort of bring in a transitional person for a year or two before the next long-term leader comes. John has a really key role here about helping God's people turn their hearts in the right direction. And so we remember, you know, what God had said through our prophet Zechariah, Return to me. Return. Turn your orientation back towards me and I'll return to you. And so what John's ministry will be encaptured by is getting people to look in the right direction. God's people have have a long history. In fact, humanity has a long history of looking in the wrong direction. It's a bit like if you're in overseas where the cars are on the other side of the road you have to sort of just be intentional as you're about to cross to go am i looking in the right direction i remember for the first time back in the olympics when the olympics were here in 2000 that all the councils put on the pedestrian foot things the arrow look that way because if you look the wrong way it's fatal if you're looking in the wrong direction isn't it and so john's ministry is calling people to turn towards god Because by nature, humans not only face the wrong direction, but we walk. In in fact, we often run away from God, don't we? (laughs) We we know that God's there. We know that he has his will for us. and, And we just stubbornly just keep walking that way. And so God's people have been doing that for generations and generations and generations. And John's ministry, John, whose name means God is gracious... His ministry is to call people to face the Lord. And so God continues to graciously provide what is needed. Verse 17 shows that he'll provide for John. Uh, The angel continues telling Zechariah that, that he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, a picture of how God is going to graciously equip John for the ministry. And he's quoting here from Malachi, some of the last verses of the Old Testament. And and there's like a 400-year gap from the last prophet to this arrival now. 400 years! Think about how little we know of our family history from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 400 years. But the promise was that God would one day send someone like Elijah, a desert-dwelling, courageous radical who would proclaim God's message, who would come before the Lord finally arrives and would prepare the people so that they would be ready to welcome him. 
And so this is a very long time to be waiting. It's, it's such a long time between promise made and then promise delivered. It's such a long time for God's people to keep praying and keep trusting. But God shows himself here as reliable. And he graciously gives what his people need. The gift of John, who would go before, who would point God's people in the right direction for when the headline act comes. Jesus himself. It wasn't going to be John who was going to realise God's great plans of restoration. It was going to be Jesus. But John prepares the ground. It's like the support band, just sort of getting the, the, the audience in, in tune with appreciating music and just sort of looking forward to the headline act. And, and the great thing about the headline act is that God is committed to keeping his promises. And so with the prayers being answered, Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to have a son. And how does Zechariah respond to this? We'll have a look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now it's easy sort of looking back and having heard the story multiple times to sort of say, Zechariah, what are you doing, mate? But think about it. Like he's had a pretty big day. It's like the biggest day in his professional history. And then he's confronted with this angel who's saying this situation, in the, like the, the most hopeless situation, the greatest disappointment that he and his wife have experienced is going to be reversed. It's not surprising that he struggles to just wholeheartedly accept it. And there's no personal precedent that Zechariah would have had for this. It's not a situation that he faced before. But such is God's grace that it often comes in unique ways. And, and we see in God's response that he expected Zechariah to trust him. He expected Zechariah to trust that God is reliable to deliver on his word. But Zechariah isn't so sure, and I think we can all relate to that. When we're sort of unsure about how gracious God really is, when we face these situations of hopelessness, and we'd like to believe that God's powerful enough to, to bring about change or reversal or refuge, but we're not really sure. Sure, we can sort of say in our words that we believe that God is sovereign and he's omniscient. But disbelief in God's power and willingness to act in very particular situations, it's hard, isn't it? And so this sort of doubt or aversion that Zechariah embodies is something that we can relate to, isn't it? Where we just disbelieve in God's power, we minimise his generosity and grace. But God is wanting to show Zechariah that not only is he wanting to answer his prayers, but his plan for all is something that is going to come about. And so Zechariah is confronted. Gabriel, an angel, is the one who sort of confirms that 
He comes with authority. Verse 19, there's reassurance for Zechariah. No, no, this is a credible source. Zechariah is not sort of being scammed. God has sent this angel to reveal his plan. And so God does graciously discipline Zechariah. He's now unable to speak. Silenced in verse 20 until the appropriate time. And so that would become a personal reminder for Zechariah about how he, he, he struggled. He failed to trust God at his word. Zechariah's inability to speak also becomes this public spectacle amongst the surrounding audience to go, hang on, something's happened here. Something's happening. And it also ensures that Zechariah doesn't leak out what's happened before God eventually would want things to be revealed. And so all this activity in and around the temple, we see verse 21, leaves those who waited wondering and confused. What's going to be realised here? And so Zechariah returns home and he he sees firsthand how reliable God is to his promises. His wife Elizabeth is pregnant. And so real joy from God's grace to them can be experienced. And verse 25 there shows Elizabeth's experience of sort of the removal of this lingering shame. This shame that perhaps had haunted her for many years. And we see that the reliability of God to execute his plan in sending John, who would prepare the way, is God's grace to this world to to help God's people look in the right direction, to turn their attention towards him. And so God is going to come and dwell amongst. And and so the prayers of the people for for God to realise his promises, for restoration to come, this incidental act in Zechariah's life was evidence that God is committed to his promise, that God was going to bring something extraordinary, that God himself was going to dwell. And so what we see as Zechariah and God's people had come to pray and then the response to those prayers is that there's so many opportunities that we all face in life where opportunities to trust that God is reliable and gracious. The decisions of our life, the details of our circumstances are opportunities that we demonstrate how reliable we think God is. Do we work and relate to God on a sort of work basis of, I put in this much effort and so I expect this much in return? Or do we approach a God who is gracious and generous? There's so many of God's promises that we're unsure how and where they're going to be realised. And certainly this passage isn't sort of saying that God is willing to restore every element of brokenness in our life now. But God is the giver of good things. And and so as we've been thinking about the last two months and the kids sang for us last week, we're thinking about the now and the not yet. 
There are good things that we can experience now that we can ask for, but the fullness of everything that's promised is not yet revealed. So, so what do we make of these first 25 verses of Luke's Gospel? Well, I think, how reliable do we think God is? How gracious do we think God is? And perhaps the forum to help us reflect on that is not us thinking conceptually, but us reflecting on our prayers. Because the confronting thing is that the, the nature, the frequency, and the expectation by which we pray shows deeply how reliable we think God is and how gracious he is. You see, we can pray for God to provide good things personally. Spouses, children, houses, jobs, physical healing. We can pray for God's cosmic and corporate activity. For him to draw people to himself. For for God's people to grow in number and maturity and love and effectiveness. We can pray for God's plan to be realised. For him to return. But what do your prayers show about how reliable you think God is? Isn't it so easy to go through the motions? To sort of be like the person who goes to a concert to sort of just critically assess the theory of what's being played up front? Oh yeah, that's interesting. Oh, that was quite good. Rather than those who come to a gig and just give themselves to those who are performing. To allow themselves to appreciate the wonder of the experience that they're in. Because that's what prayer is. To to be in the presence of the creator of all. When Jesus comes and and makes the pathway that each of us can pray to him, the God of the universe as Father, is the most wondrous thing at all. And, And to come to him trusting that he is reliable, that the promises he's made to be with us, the hope that is lasting beyond all the fragility of this world is real. It's something that we don't just give lip service to, but it's an opportunity for us to fully experience. It's not only in the way that we pray for the big and the small, but it's how we approach the the decisions that we face. How reliable is God? Am I going to trust him and his ways, or am I going to trust in self? You see, to trust in his reliability costs us something. It costs us just sort of just doing it our own way. It might cost us when we have these desires that our body has that we sort of go, no, no, I'm going to leave them unrealized for the sake of pursuing purity and knowing that God's promises are true. Or as we avoid the career progression that could be possible 
as we sort of say, no, 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 I want to value people rather than just the plans that are put before me by an organisation. It's not only in our prayer that we can experience the wonder of God and speak to him, but it's as we navigate the decisions that are before us and seek to trust in God's provision, to see that he is reliable and that he is gracious. We all have the opportunity to experience the God who is bringing about a plan that will last. And so let's sort of carve out some space for us to not just live in the end of year Christmas flurry and actually experience the wonder of the God who draws near to us. And so what we're going to do now is just provide some space for some personal prayer time. For you to be able to share with your father the things that are on your heart. Perhaps there's something big and obvious that's just sort of, it's right there. He'd love to hear that. What does it mean for you to pray to a God who is reliable and gracious about that? But perhaps there's just a whole range of small and ordinary things in your life. What does it look like for you to commit them to God who is reliable and gracious? I'm going to put a five-minute timer 